Chronicles Revisited Podcast, Episode 5, The ATM for the Brokerage Industry, Investment Hardware and Software Before the Internet. Welcome to the Chronicles Revisited Podcast. I'm S.M. Oliva. I write the blog Computer Chronicles Revisited, which reviews the people and products featured on the PBS series that aired between 1983 and 2002. In this podcast, I focus on individual stories that I've previously featured on the blog. In this episode, I'll look at a February 1986 Chronicles that featured a number of hardware and software products designed to help people invest in the stock market. While the internet was still about a decade away from being useful to the average person, there were a number of companies looking to exploit the demand from individual traders to have instant access to the latest company and stock information. As we'll see, while none of these products achieved mass popularity, some proved to have a longer life cycle than might have been expected. Our first subject is Charles Spear. Originally a lawyer from Ohio, Spear took a job with a Chicago bank in the late 1960s and later transitioned into stocks and bonds. In 1981, he relocated again, this time to Los Angeles, and started Spear Financial Services in 1981. Spear quickly took his new company public through a process known as a reverse merger. Basically, this involved buying an existing but worthless public company and renaming it after his own. Using this tactic, Spear managed to raise $3 million in capital for Spear Financial Services, which was one of the first companies to offer brokerage services to individual investors with personal computers. When that market proved too small, however, he expanded the operation to include more traditional discount brokerage services. That led to his appearance on Computer Chronicles to discuss Spear Securities brokerage software, which was available on The Source, an early online service. Spear explained how the software worked to Gary Kildall. Chuck, how are uh, computers really helping a small investor nowadays? Well, the computer, in a way, is the ATM machine for the brokerage industry because it puts in the hands of the consumer a wealth of information never there before, and it gives him the access to the market so that he can do an automated trade. Okay, now you have an example of just uh, an automated trade going on here, right? Uh, well, I have a, uh, the Spear Security software, which uh, on the main menu shows a variety of things. It shows that you can access quotes, that you can look at your portfolio, which is posted up to the second, that you can look at your tax records, and when you're ready to do a trade, that you can enter the trade detail, get the trade done, and see it posted. While Spear promoted the ability to make off-market trades 24 hours a day with his software, the New York Stock Exchange would later put a stop to it and Spear himself conceded to the Los Angeles Times in 1988 that few customers actually used the service. Spear may have been ahead of his time with the idea of a 24-hour online brokerage, but he ultimately lost control of his company to far more conventional financial products. In 1988, Spear Financial Services purchased James Mitchell & Company by assuming $2.2 million of the latter's debt. Mitchell sold annuities and other insurance-based investment products. The deal said that the owner of Mitchell & Company, James Mitchell, could acquire additional Spear stock based on performance. Charles Spear said at the time that Mitchell would likely end up owning a bigger stake of the company than him. And that is apparently what happened. Spear resigned from his own company in December 1992. By this point, the Mitchell annuity business accounted for two-thirds of Spear Financial Services' total revenues. James Mitchell then took control of the company, 
sold off the Spear brokerage, and continued the annuity business under the name the JMC Group. Our next subject is Richard Carlin, who appeared on Computer Chronicles to discuss Telescan Analyzer, a dial-up online database of stock information. Richard, I'd like to stay, take a look uh, right away at uh, your product called uh, Telescan Analyzer. Good. Yes, our product allows a person to retrieve historical stock information and display it on the screen very rapidly. We can get a, any graph of any stock and display it on the screen less than 15 seconds. This just shows a uh, graph that we've retrieved from our database showing the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average back to 1973. And as you can see, the Dow has been going uh, flat for a long period of time, and then in 1982, broke out and has since been hitting all-time highs. However, if we take advantage of one of the features of our telescan analyzer, and that's the ability to adjust for inflation, we can take a look at the Dow now after adjusting for the consumer price index. And what we find is not a stock market that's hitting all new highs, but a market that is just now beginning to turn around after a period, very, very long period of decline in real terms. Now, Richard, this is, uh, again, uh, connected to another, another computer system through Yes, this is to our from. own database in Houston, Texas. And then the data is transmitted to, locally to this machine and then presented as a graph, is that yes, correct? Yes, mm -hmm. it is. Stuart Chaffee introduced Carlin as the president and CEO of Telescan. But Carlin's position was actually quite tenuous. Perhaps unknown to Chaffee and Kildall, Telescan itself nearly collapsed as this episode was recorded in early 1986. Most of Telescan's known history comes from a 1997 Texas Appeals Court decision, Hoggett v. Brown. Hoggett and Brown were Carlin's business partners in Telescan. The dissolution of that partnership led to over a decade of litigation. Carlin met Derek Hoggett in 1978. At the time, Carlin was completing his Ph.D. in biochemistry at the University of Houston before going on to a fellowship in New York City. Carlin also liked to dabble in stocks, which is how he met Hoggett, who was a stockbroker. The two men became friends and started trading stocks together. In 1982, Carlin approached Hoggett with a program he wrote to retrieve and analyze stock information using a personal computer. This would become the basis for Telescan Analyzer. Carlin believed the software could be turned into a viable consumer product, but he lacked the time and money to develop it. So Hoggett agreed to finance a startup venture, Telescan Incorporated, using a loan from one of his other companies. It turned out that the development of Analyzer dragged on throughout 1983 and 1984. Hoggett was largely footing the bill himself, but he was running out of money. So a mutual friend introduced Hoggett and Carlin to David Brown, an experienced investor in the tech industry. Brown took out a $500,000 line of credit, which he used to finance a new limited partnership called Telescan Limited. Telescan Incorporated, the original company formed by Carlin and Hoggett, was the general partner of Telescan Limited. Hoggett served as president and chief executive, with Carlin continuing to oversee product development. But that development continued to drag on well into 1985. After burning through the original $500,000 line of credit, the three partners obtained a new loan of $750,000, most of which went to pay back the original line of credit. And while Telescan managed to finally ship Analyzer at the end of 1985, the company continued to have cash flow problems. By December 1985, David Brown had also soured on Derek Hoggett's management of Telescan. So he and Carlin voted to remove Hoggett as CEO, with Carlin taking his place. 
But the management change didn't solve the cash flow problem. As 1985 ended, Telescan's long-distance carrier threatened to disconnect its telephone service. This would prevent what customers Telescan did have from remotely accessing the analyzer database. Faced with a potentially crippling blow to the business, David Brown's attorney advised him to either file for bankruptcy or merge Telescan into another company to attract additional capital, which incidentally is basically the same reverse merger that Charles Spear had used to start his company. On February 2nd, 1986, the same week that Carlin's appearance on Computer Chronicles first aired, Hoggett sent a letter to Carlin and Brown suggesting they opt for bankruptcy. Brown and Carlin, however, decided to go with the reverse merger option. Brown formed DB Technology Incorporated, and with Carlin's approval, signed an agreement for this new company to acquire Telescan. The merger agreement cut Hoggett out of DB Technology entirely, although he was promised a limited payout should the new company turn a profit during the next three years. The merger was approved, with Hoggett as the only dissenting vote, on March the 4th, 1986. The next day, Hoggett sued Brown, Carlin, and various other parties associated with the deal. The defendants responded with their own counterclaims against Hoggett. Three years later, in 1989, Hoggett won a judgment in his favor following a trial in Houston, Texas. The Texas 14th District Court of Appeals ordered a new trial, however, after finding the trial judge improperly excluded certain expert testimony. The second trial ended in a jury verdict for Hoggett and an award of $2.6 million in damages. But the judge overruled the jury and found that Hoggett was only entitled to reimbursement for the loans he made to Telescan back in 1985. This time, the 14th District upheld the judge's decision, which led to the 1997 opinion. By now, roughly 11 years had passed since Hoggett's ouster and the DB Technology reverse merger. In the interim, DB Technology sold its assets to another company, Max Rett Incorporated, in 1989, which then changed its name to Telescan. This final incarnation of Telescan was ultimately acquired by Zyasun Technologies in 2001. Dan Carlin remained with Telescan as its chief technology officer until 2000. He has continued to work as a software developer since then. Our final subject is a pair of products produced by Lotus Development Corporation, the company best known for its 123 spreadsheet. Wendy Woods profiled the first product, known as Quotrek, and interviewed one of its users for this report. John Eckridge is not the typical example of a full-time stock market investor. He doesn't wear pinstripes, keep voluminous notebooks, or yell himself hoarse on the trading floor. His toolkit today consists of a portable stock quote receiver and a personal computer. John gave up his traditional brokerage practice when he realized that he could invest for himself at home, freed from the burdens of clients and commuting, in exchange for a few other responsibilities. While he hasn't cut all communication lines to his full-service broker, John does most of his research at the computer, which gathers data from online services, tracks and updates the stocks in his portfolio, and charts the performance of selected stocks over days or years. About the only other tools on his desk are a newspaper and the Quotrek, a real-time stock quote radio receiver. The online services cost about $250 a month. In exchange, John gets a real-time link to the trading floor, a very individualized service, and just a few regrets. I think when you work alone and you work in a home and you don't have coworkers 
um, around you that, that uh, some of that feedback is missing. And that's one of the reasons that I still have a standard broker. Buying stocks from your living room may lack some of the excitement of Wall Street, but it features some special attractions of its own. The story of what became Quotrek actually predates Lotus by more than a decade. In the early 1970s, a graduate student in engineering at Penn State University, Anthony Fischenda, wrote his master's thesis on how to design an automated timing system for Formula One races using tiny radio transmitters mounted in the cars combined with embedded antenna around the race track. Fischenda never finished his master's degree, but in 1977, he decided to start a company with a former boss, Daniel Gregg, and a friend from his undergraduate days, Roland Ake. The new company, Data Speed Incorporated, originally planned to sell handheld timing units based on Fischenda's thesis to spectators at racetracks. Data Speed soon attracted the attention of a New Jersey-based investment group led by David Lockton, a former corporate lawyer and racing enthusiast who had raised $30 million in 1967 to build the Ontario Motor Speedway in Los Angeles. Lockton joined Datastreet as its CEO in 1981 and quickly pivoted Fischenda's technology from real-time racetrack information to real-time stock information. Datastreet went public on the stock market in 1983. Lockett initially made a lot of big promises for his startup's technology. He signed an agreement with National Public Radio to create, quote, new telecommunications services, unquote, that would use FM radio to transmit not just stock quotes, but also weather reports, sports scores, and news headlines. Datastreet launched its new device, the Quotrek, on March 5, 1984, when it debuted in Chicago. Lockton had already scaled back the scope of the project by this point. Quotrek only provided stock quotes. The original device was an 11-ounce handheld with a 2-inch LCD screen and a calculator-style keyboard. The user could program up to 40 stocks in the Quotrek's memory. The Quotrek was initially manufactured in the Philippines by Regency Electronics, which had purchased a 20% stake in Datastreet for $9.6 million in August 1983. The Quotrek itself retailed for $399 at launch and required an additional monthly subscription that started at $37.50 per month. As Wendy Woods explained in her report, the Quotrek relied on radio broadcasts to transmit real-time information. In 1983, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission adopted a regulation permitting existing FM radio stations to transmit computer data on two additional sub-frequencies. In effect, the Quotrek stock data piggybacked on the regular FM radio signal. So while the Quotrek was a wireless system, it did not rely on anything resembling the modern Internet. The initial sales of the Quotrek were not as good as Datastreet hoped. The company publicly said it needed to sell at least 10,000 units to break even in 1984. By September of that year, however, there were only about 2,000 Quotrek devices in use. By early 1985, the company's debts were mounting, and Lockton needed to find a buyer quickly, which he did with Lotus. Mitchell Kapoor founded Lotus Development Corporation in 1982. Kapoor had previously worked with VisiCorp, the publishers of VisiCalc, the first computer spreadsheet program. After leaving VisiCorp, Kapoor launched his own spreadsheet program, Lotus123, for the IBM PC in the fall of 1982. 123 quickly supplanted its predecessor, and over the next two years, 
Lotus grew into a $156 million company with 750 employees. Starting around 1985, Lotus went on a buying spree, gobbling up other companies in an attempt to diversify its portfolio beyond its signature product. Despite Lotus's lack of history in selling hardware, DataSpeed apparently proved too tempting an acquisition target for Kapoor and his management team. One Lotus executive told the Boston Globe that Lotus effectively paid 40 cents on the dollar to acquire DataSpeed's debts. The purchase became final in June 1985. David Lockton departed as CEO shortly thereafter, although other DataSpeed executives, including President Jim West, stayed on for a period of time. West ended up speaking to Wendy Woods about the other DataSpeed product acquired by Lotus, a device for downloading stock information directly into a personal computer. Originally called Modio, Lotus ended up releasing it under the name Signal. Lotus Information Network is pioneering a new kind of delivery system for time-sensitive investment data. Unlike most services, which offer up-to-the-minute stock and commodity data to computers through the phone lines, Lotus's Signal package picks up this data from an FM radio subband by an FM receiver, which plugs into a PC serial port. Up to 250 user-programmed issues, constantly monitored and changed, can then be displayed in various formats on the PC screen. Our system is a continuous system so that updates are occurring second by second as the transactions occur on a continuous basis throughout the trading day. Even when the computer is off, our product actually maintains the information in a background mode and, um, in fact, will keep track of... Um, of your portfolio, including alerting you if changes occur that you preset to watch for, uh, as I say, even when the uh, product is uh, being used for some other purpose. This is the Brain Center for Signal Broadcast to 12 U.S. cities. Live quotes on 23,000 issues being traded from all the major exchanges come here to this Burlingame, California computer facility via long lines. From here, information is sent out to the Equatorial Satellite, where it's picked up by 12 radio stations across the country which broadcast the signal. Lotus's proprietary technology, by the way, also allows the data, once loaded into a PC, to be used in spreadsheets such as 123 and Symphony. The product has only been out for a few months, and although Lotus refuses to divulge sales figures, the company claims the product has sold beyond their expectations. Lotus had retired the DataSpeed name in favor of the more cumbersome branding of Lotus Information Network Corporation, or LINK. Lotus also took over the manufacturing of Quotrek from Regency. And while I could not find any hard sales figures on Quotrek or Signal during Lotus's ownership, it apparently was never a major moneymaker for the company. It certainly didn't overtake the company's core spreadsheet business. Indeed, by 1986, the acquisition spree had ended. Mitchell Kapoor abruptly resigned as CEO that June. His successor, Jim Manzi, initially reiterated the company's commitment to Link and its products, stating that Quotrek and Signal represented three- to five-year investments. In reality, it turned out to be a little less than three years. In December 1989, Lotus sold the entire Link division to Financial News Network, a subsidiary of Infotechnology Incorporated. FNN was a 24-hour financial and business news cable channel that had launched in 1981. FNN merged Link's businesses, including Quotrek and Signal, into one of its existing divisions, Data Broadcasting Corporation. Ten months later, however, FNN collapsed. The company disclosed it was in a major financial crisis and unable to pay its bills. 
The FNN board promptly fired the CEO and brought in Alan Hirschfeld and Alan Tesler as interim co-CEOs. The two Allens' function was to shepherd the company through bankruptcy and to find a buyer. In May 1991, a federal bankruptcy judge approved Hirschfeld and Tesler's plan to sell most of FNN's assets, notably the cable channel, to CNBC for $154.3 million. But Hirschfeld and Tesler still believed that Data Broadcasting Corporation was a viable standalone business. So they used the hollowed out shell of FNN to relaunch the company under the data broadcasting name in June 1992. Surprisingly, Quotrek and Signal continued to be developed during and after this transition. In November 1995, an updated Quotrek cost $295 and required a minimum subscription of $90 per month. Meanwhile, the Signal was now being sold as a $450 plug-in card for laptops and came with its own $160 per month subscription. To be clear, these were always niche products. Even after a decade on the market, there were only about 9,000 Quotrek users and 13,000 Signal customers. And as the internet boom was finally in full swing, data broadcasting saw which way the wind was blowing. The company launched the financial news website MarketWatch.com in a joint venture with CBS. MarketWatch's January 1999 initial public offering drove Data Broadcasting's own stock price to record highs, which was quickly followed by a spectacular collapse. Alas, the internet bust was finally in full swing. Data Broadcasting lost 58% of its market value over a 10-day period following the MarketWatch IPO. By September 1999, Data Broadcasting reported an operating loss of $4.2 million, despite posting record revenues. Hirschfeld and Tesla knew when to cut their losses. They sold a majority stake in data broadcasting to Pearson PLC, which merged the company into one of its other subsidiaries, Interactive Data Corporation. While the last physical devices appeared to have shipped around 1998, IDC relaunched Quotrek and Signal in 2004 as digital services that delivered stock quotes and financial information to BlackBerry phones. IDC itself was later sold to a pair of private equity firms, which in turn sold the business to Intercontinental Exchange, the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange, in 2015. ICE eventually transitioned Signal into eSignal, a service that continues to provide real-time streaming market data to iOS and Android devices. As for Quotrek, ICE retired that name in 2017 when Quotrek's remaining functions were merged into eSignal. And that's all for this episode of the Chronicles Revisited podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode, there are links in the show notes. You can also visit my website, Computer Chronicles Revisited, at smoliva.blog. That's S-M-O-L-I-V-A dot blog. This episode was adapted from a blog post that I published in June 2022, and it contains more on the people and products featured on the Computer Chronicles. In the next episode, I'll look at the story of an early personal computer entrepreneur whose final business venture met with an unfortunately litigious end. Talk to you then.